I was just trying not to run, I thought. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. like I just followed the voice in my head, ma'am. I didn't say that out loud, right. but uh, that, that could have led to a whole nother problem. <laughs> yeah, it could have led to a psych evaluation. <laughs> right. <laughs> This is Ordinary Voices, inviting ordinary people into conversations about life and faith. I'm your host, Eric Elkin. I created this podcast to help me, a pastor, better understand people and the way they view the world. Now I'm inviting you into the conversation so together we might listen. Listen to hear the presence of God breathing through the thoughts of these ordinary voices so we both can discover expressions of hope in daily life guests on the show are not authorities. They're simply people willing to share with us the authenticity of their own thoughts. I try to provide the guests the freedom to talk and let them determine the direction of the conversation. Then reflect upon the things I heard them say. Each show I ask you to listen like a good camp counselor. Good camp counselors allow children to express themselves without judgment. They listen for what the camper is trying to say people who listen tend to understand each other better, and we live in a world desperate for ears. So let's begin today's show. This is Life Now. My guest today is Jason Atkinson, a 32-year-old husband, father, and professional working in the field of security. You'll never guess it by listening to him, but Jason was born in England, the United Kingdom. He lost his accent shortly after moving to the United States when he was 16 years old. His journey to the U.S. began with a divorce, and an event one might call foreshadowing of life to come. Jason's early life was spent in two towns in England, Leyland and Durham. We only catch a glimpse of the story, but it was a childhood far from settled, bounce between parents in a life filled with issues. Let's listen to Jason describe the journey to the United States. A whole bunch of stuff had happened in my uh, teen years, my early teen years. My, my, my parents divorced at a young age, and then there was a little bit of bouncing back and forth between who I'm going to live with and how long I was there. You know, I had a, a stepdad who actually uh, went in for a heart transplant and uh, basically just didn't come back. Like he got his first heart, uh, seemed to be doing okay, but got really sick. And luck would have it that a second heart was available, but he wasn't strong enough. Even though they they attempted it, he was either going to die from the sickness, like a, it was like a really bad cold or an infection or something like that. Mm-hmm. So he was either going to pass away from that, or they could try the second heart, and then you know hopefully he'd be okay. But he he wasn't, and he you know my he went in the ambulance. I w- I remember waving goodbye. See you know I I'm pretty sure I yelled something like I'll see you when you get back or something like that, but. It was weird because I remember standing at the door, waving and shouting that, but I never believed it. Really? Uh, and then I I thought nothing else of it, you know. After like it was a split moment, and I and I kind of left it there. And then sure enough, uh, it was you know days later, my mom came home by herself, and I knew something was wrong. Like I mean, being a young kid, I didn't know 
how long he would have to have been in the hospital. She could have just been home to, you know, grab clothes or something for right. all I know. But I could just tell something was wrong. Uh, and that's when she pulled me into the room and she said, hey, you know, Eric was his name. He's like, he's, you know, he died. He's not coming home. Um, and that's what kind of changed everything. I had already lived with my dad at one point and then finally plucked up the courage to get out of there. And what I mean by that is I had a, I had a pretty rough time after he remarried. This woman that he married, she ended up not being very nice and she, you know, she was very abusive, hmm. uh, both verbally and physically. Okay. And my dad was none the wiser, had no idea. And sometimes he would, uh, this was when we lived in Leyland. He would travel back to Durham, where we originally were, uh, for weeks at a time to go work there. And things at the house were awful. But then when he would come back for a couple weeks on a kind of a, a break, things were hunky-dory. And, you know, no one knew the wiser. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. So at one point, we eventually moved back to Durham. <laughs> so, you know, born there, moved to Leyland, then moved back to Durham. Uh, and it was during that time that I was finally able to say, hey, I need to get out of here and here's why. But he never believed me on the why because he never saw it. Jason's missing accent is a metaphor for his entire presence as a human being. Listening to the confidence in his voice, one would never suspect what is taking place in his life right now. He walks us through some significant early life trauma with ease, often finding humor in the situation. I never got the feeling Jason was trying to hide anything. On the contrary, he was honest and comfortable inviting us into the very deep parts of his life, no matter how painful. Let's continue to listen. did the online dating thing before online dating was a thing okay yeah which, which is so typical of my mother she'd be like you know she's just whatever free-spirited like i'm gonna if i want to do it i'm gonna do it okay. that's that's who she is um so she comes into my room one day i keep i'm minding my own business you know as a kid does <laughs> and and she's like so i met this guy i'm like okay he lives in iowa where? <laughs> I've never heard of Iowa. Where is that in the UK? Well, it's not in the UK. <laughs> in England, that the, the last year of high school is a big deal because if you want to go to college, you have to get certain grades on your exams. So these for everyone in high school, these this like last year is super crucial because it really sets you up for everything else. And so I'm trying to figure all that out while she's you know, gallivanting across the world, trying, you know, hanging out with this new guy that I've never met. Uh, so that was fun. So, you know, it eventually she came back and she's like, okay, your Easter break's coming up soon. Uh, you're going to come with me and you're going to meet the guy. And it didn't click until I got there that I wasn't just meeting the guy. I was actually figuring out where I was going to be living. Cause at that point I had found out that we were going to, you know, they were getting serious and we were going to move. Okay. And, like, I knew it in my head, but it wasn't real yet. Sixteen, I graduate from high school. My exams mean nothing to me because I, we figured out that the school system here didn't care about what I did in my exams. Uh, 
because it's just, just a whole different structure. Right. So uh, I did them anyway just to get that diploma at the end. And a couple months later, we moved. And that was it. Jason is a 16-year-old British high school graduate living in Iowa. Colleges advised his parents he needed a year of high school in the United States before they would accept him. It was a wasted year, academically meaningless and detrimental to his study habits, and socially, well, you do the math on that one. His frustration was noticeable when we talked about that year. So much life was lost in transition. Jason has a voice in his head that often tells him where to go. A healthy voice, like a premonition or a sense of being spiritually called in a certain direction. That little voice told Jason to drop out of college and join a Christian rock band. While playing in that band, he met a church youth leader named Maggie. Eventually they would marry and Jason would give up the band. He finds a niche working in the field of security, although he was somewhat stifled in growth by a lack of education and experience. So once again, his little voice spoke up in his head. felt like that voice in my head was coming back. Um, the same one with the drums, like, hey, play the drums. Mm-hmm. That's the same one of, hey, go to that church, do that thing. Mm-hmm. This voice was coming back. And I didn't know why, but I was like, I'm going to join the Air Force. Usually with all these different events that have happened, it's been like, you know, when the door is open, it's open. Like it's wide open. Mm-hmm. But on this one, there was a bit of a stumbling block because – I'd had kidney stones before, and to get into the Air Force, that, that's a trump, and they won't let you in, unless you can get a waiver. So I was in what they call the DEP program, which is the Delayed Entry Program, and I had submitted a waiver to overcome the kidney stone problem. And if they accepted the waiver, then I could get in. So I got in, and I'm going through basic training, and I'm two weeks in. And again, this voice in the back of my head. And at this point, you know, again, hindsight, I'm pretty sure God's like directly speaking to me. As bold as that is to say, we're all outside. We're about to do one of our first timed runs, kind of to figure out where we're going to be in the pack. And a doctor, she's on this platform and she's given a speech that she gives to everybody every week, I'm sure. You know, if, if you're experiencing this, that or the other, you need to come see me first. So that voice in my in the back of my head saying, get in line, go talk to her. So like a robot, I did. And I, as soon as I found myself in line uh, behind two or three other uh, trainees, I'm like, why am I in line? <laughs> like, I didn't know what to say. So I, it got to my turn. I was all out of thoughts at this point. And she looks at me and all I blurted out was something feels weird in my chest. And I'm thinking to myself, where the heck did that come from? So she gets out her stethoscope and she, you know, shoves it in her ears and she puts it on my chest and she's like, hmm. And I'm thinking, hmm? What, what does hmm mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then before she speaks to me, she waves over the other doctor guy and she's like, hey, so-and-so, sergeant, come over here. So he comes over and she's like, listen to this. So he listens, and he goes, hmm. And I'm thinking, 
Two homes. <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> this must be serious. So she looks at me. She doesn't give me any information. She just says, you're not running today. And I went, yes, ma'am. The next day, I sure enough, I go. It was only supposed to be a couple hours for, an, for the appointment. I ended up spending like three days in the hospital. Uh, EKGs, echoes, MRIs, all kinds of different labs. No idea what's going on. The, the, the last day I was there, I woke up in the morning with, keep in mind, this is a military hospital, but like I'm on base. Mm-hmm. And so there's like all these officers surround, there's like nine of them surrounding my bed, all looking down at me, smiling. So I'm like, do I like, like, what do I do here? Do I stand at attention but laying down? Like, you know, right, right. Like, what, what's the protocol? So they're basically saying, look, you have a problem with your heart. Uh, you're only a trainee. You know, if, you, if you'd been in the service for five or ten years, maybe would, we would have helped you out. But you're basically, you're, you're going home. Yeah, I'd only been in for like up to three weeks at this point. I haven't actually even spoken to Maggie yet. As the story unfolds, it's important for people to understand. Jason spent months getting ready for basic training. He built up his stamina enough to handle a 5K run, then worked on improving his time. Every day he went and lifted weights, did push-ups, sit-ups, and chin-ups. When he entered the Air Force, he was in the best shape of his life. Or so he thought. They kicked me out of my street flight and put me over to what at the time was called the 319, which basically was the broken squadron. Uh, okay, all the people. They kicked you out of what? The st- street flight. So when, when everyone's in training, you're in your street flight. Okay. That's just the terminology for it. Um, and then I went over to a different squadron, which was actually literally across the street. Like I could see my squadron from when I was outside, which was kind of weird, but... Um, I went over there and I finally got to make a phone call, uh, to Maggie. So I was like, Hey, how's it going? You know, I've got news. I'm coming home and here's why. And she was just like, uh, like she didn't know how to process that knowledge. And I couldn't like, she had questions and I couldn't answer them. Uh, and it took about two and a half months before I actually got out. Because of, they had to put me, get me in a stable place first. First, they needed to learn more about what was going on inside me, then get me to into a stable position where if they sent me home, I wasn't going to be in a worse off, you know, state. Right. Uh, and then there's all the paperwork that goes along with it, which does not move at the same speed as an airplane. <laughs> The logistics side of the military can be frustrating, and Jason will tell you just how frustrating it can be. But as you listen, think for a moment about Maggie. Your husband joins the Air Force, and you can't speak to him for three weeks. You finally get to speak to him, and it's with this news. I'm coming home, but I don't know when. I have a heart issue, but I don't know what it is. I'll let you know, but I'm not sure when. Goodbye. Both Maggie and Jason will be alone and in the dark. 
each in their own way. Each will need someone to lean on. We all had armbands to, for segregation purposes. <laughs> yeah. uh, I had a blue armband, which just means I was physically broken in some way, shape, or form. But most people with a blue armband went back into their training. They just had to get mended first. Orange, or no, I'm sorry, orange armbands were the dishonorably discharged. Okay. Uh, the, the green armbands were the uh, get fitters, as we called them. Get fitters? Uh, yeah. They, at the end of your training, everyone has to pass your physical training test, as well as written tests and things like that. And these individuals happen to fail on one or more things like sit-ups or push-ups or running or whatever. Right. So you, you didn't want to be in that squadron either because you were pushed to the limit every day. Those were the three groups. And some people within my group may have been going home like I was. Other people were just waiting around to be you know, kind of put back together and then thrown back into training. Okay. But, I mean, some people in this uh, dormitory had been there for a year or more. What? Oh, yeah. Uh, some people were there for a couple of weeks. Some people were there for a really, really long time. Um, and it was it's kind of like Groundhog Day in there. Really? Like, it's sad to say, but we actually had, while I was there, in the two and a half months that I was in this building, we had two people commit suicide because of just the mental state. Um, there Obviously, there are other factors that I don't know about, but a lot of people, we even had a couple people still attempt that were stopped or caught. It wasn't a joke as far as why people were there and the state of mind that you had to be in. You may not have been able to do anything physically to keep yourself strong, but you had to stay mentally strong, and that was the hardest part. Any young person who was forced to confront some failure to perform will find the experience difficult to manage emotionally. The mental challenge of coping with one's own brokenness day after day after day can become all-consuming, which obviously it did for Jason and others. I don't know about you, but this really shook me. Yeah, I mean, I it definitely got to me, that's for sure. I never... I never really let anyone at home know that, but I definitely struggled. But I leaned on people. Uh, you know, you make you made friends in there very quick because you have to. I mean, right. you're surrounded by the same people day in and day out. So, yeah. um, who'd you lean on? Uh, I had a, a bunk mate, uh, Frank, who a yeah. uh, couple years older than me. At the t- I was 27 at the time. He was a really cool guy just to get to know and talk to and just kind of be friends with okay. and, and there were other people too they call you know they pick on me and and uh in a you know in a guy you know jabbing kind of way and i'd be like, <laughs> i'd respond like don't make me get up and slowly walk over there because you, know? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know they knew i had a heart problem how was maggie doing during that time she was she was strong and she yeah. always has been. Um, she was able to really uh, keep my spirits up. 
Mm-hmm. Um, even though, I mean, I could tell she was hurting. Obviously, she wanted me back home mm-hmm. safe and, you know, so we could kind of figure all this out. But she never really showed it uh, on the phone. She was always the strong a strong individual as far as that was concerned, which was great for me because that's what I needed. Right. Um, it was already hard enough where I was, but if she had broken down too, then it, you know, it would have made it even worse. So right. I had no control over anything. And there were many times where I thought to myself, you know, all I have to do is take all of those pills mm-hmm. and, uh, and that's it. But you know, if I, I knew if I did that, Maggie would kill me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I, I was constantly getting letters every day and, uh, I got tons and people in my dormitory were always making fun of me about that because I would get a, just a crap load of letters, uh, not just from Maggie, but from people I used to work with and, you know, the, the story spread. So people just poured in letters, um, you never really appreciate a handwritten letter until that's all you can do is write one back. Kind of reminds me that this was temporary and that eventually I would leave, uh, even though some of the days felt like years. Jason was not making light of suicide. He needed to laugh. He needed to laugh about those dark days in the 319. It's the kind of laughter a combat soldier has reflecting back on a terrifying battle. To the outside world, the joke seems morbid, but to those endured it, it's a victorious laughter, remembering not a battle won, but an event survived. All life looks better on the other side of darkness. Jason made me think about the power of a handwritten letter. It requires time and patience. It communicates a more powerful sense of relationship, compassion, and empathy than an email, something we should all think about when someone we care about is suffering. Freedom finally arrives, but is short-lived. Let's continue to listen. Right. So, you know, I eventually get home. We, we take a minute to celebrate the fact that I'm home and then we go, OK, now we got to figure out, you know, what's going on. So I ended up going to uh, I, I got all my records sent to the hospital in Davenport and I, I went to the cardiovascular center there. And the first thing they did was say, OK, you need a pacemaker defibrillator. I was having what was called PVCs. And these are preventricular contractions. Um, easiest way to explain it is your heart beats, and these PVCs are extra beats that shouldn't be there. Now, everybody has PVCs, like maybe 1% or 2%. Mm-hmm. If you think the average heart beats about 100,000 times a day, give or take, mm-hmm. uh, everyone might have 1% or 2% just because. When I went into the hospital, I looked up at the monitor, and the PVC count was like 120 a minute. The weird part was I couldn't feel them, and some people do and some people don't. So having now, you know, years later figured out that this is a genetic problem, that I've always had this issue going in, had I actually felt the PVCs, I would have figured out years ago that I had a heart problem. We, uh, we put the device in, and I've had it ever since. And it's, it's just kind of there. It's, it has gone off 
Like it has shocked me, but it's not because of it. It needed to medically. It was because I was an idiot. <laughs> and that's that's why it went off. Oh. <laughs> what a beautiful thing to have something that reminds you you're an idiot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Does it hurt too when it shocks you? Oh my goodness! Like they described to me, it'll feel like you get kicked in the chest. They are not wrong. Um, <laughs> so big you. Horse. <laughs> so your idiot reminder hurts as well beautiful oh yes yes <laughs> it took me a long time to accept the fact that i had this heart problem okay like when you grow up and you think you're normal and you know you're running you're working out you're doing 5ks you feel like a normal human being at least to a degree. <laughs> right. um, and then all of a sudden you're told, hey, you can't do all of that anymore. Uh, don't do any physical activity. We've got you on know, all these different meds that are going to stop you from doing all this you know, extra stuff. Change your life, basically. Like, I didn't want to accept that. I had really had a hard time accepting that. So I, one day I was just like, no, I'm going to work out. And it just so happened that Maggie was in camp in Makokota. And she's like, hey, could you bring my cell phone charger? And I went, sure. This is a great excuse to go for a jog. (laughs) It's like 90-some degrees out in August, I think it was, or late July. And I'd already done some working out at home, like sit-ups, push-ups, just that kind of stuff that you can do anywhere. So I get out, and I'm I'm on my jog. And again, this voice in the back of my head. And all it said was, you're about to get shocked. <laughs> I'm like, please no. So I immediately stopped and I just started walking. I'm like, okay, if I can get myself to relax, I won't get shocked. So I get to the top and bam, it hits me. And I drop. And then bam, it hits me again. And I managed to like crawl off the gravel and onto the grass. And as I'm trying to... my usually pretty good at like staying calm and grasping the situation but at this point i was just screaming for help because i didn't know how bad it was i didn't know what was happening i just knew it hurt like hell (laughs) there is no one around i am on my own uh so it goes off boom a third time i'm like this sucks and then it just so happens that maggie's dad gary drives around the corner in their car or in their van and sees me and he immediately you know jumps out and i'm like i just got shocked so he helps me get up gets me in the car goes back to the program center i mean i'm pretty pasty white now but i looked a lot worse at that point and we get inside and he's like maggie like you know freaking out and she knew something was wrong and she sees me and she runs over from the kitchen and i'm just like i my whole body's tingling because of the shocks that i've received Right. Uh, you know, they get a wet towel. We end up going to the hospital. Turns out it was just because my heart rate got too high. And that's what made the device go off because it doesn't know any different. It's kind of an idiot, too. Right. Um, so uh, it turns out after we get the device interrogated that it actually went off four times, not three. So what we figured was the first shock actually knocked me out. Okay. The second shock brought me back. And I probably just didn't feel the second shock because that's what made me come back to being awake again. And then two more after that, which is where I would have got the second and third from. 
And now every time someone wants me to exercise for, you know, at the hospital or something, I'm very cautious of what my heart rate is. And I, I never want to experience that again. But, you know, in that situation, though, again, I had the voice in the back of my head. I come to find out I get diagnosed with non-compaction dilated cardiomyopathy, which is just a really fancy way of saying that the left side of my heart was bigger than it needed to be. And my ejection fraction, because your heart's a muscle and it pumps blood, so the pumping function wasn't as strong as it should be. And I, at one point, I was down to pumping at 10%, oh my which if, if I had been like 70 or 80 years old, 10% might have felt like hell. Right. But because I was young and in shape, 10% didn't bother me that much, and my, the rest of my body kind of compensated for it. So I, I couldn't tell the difference. So it took a long time to process. And, you know, and even then, it's been six, seven years, and I'm only now, like only in the past couple of years have I really come to terms with the fact that this is life now. Right. Like it's never going to be the same. quick break for a commercial now. One Sunday a couple years ago, when worship was over, my wife turned to me and said, that's it? That's supposed to help me get through my week? I think about this statement every time I produce a podcast or write a blog. Ordinary Voices is a resource for people searching for spiritual meaning in daily life, for people looking for hope. I want to help you bridge that spiritual gap between Sundays or provide something meaningful if it's missing altogether. In the podcast, we're invited into the lives of ordinary people like Jason, with the thought we might find some of our own struggles in these stories, then, in reflection upon them, discover hope. If you like what you hear, please, please, please recommend it to a friend. They may be searching as well. Go to the website ordinaryvoices.org, that's ordinaryvoices.org, to find other shows or to sign up for the daily devotions. This podcast is a listener-supported show, so if you enjoy it, please consider financially supporting it by clicking the Donate button on the website, OrdinaryVoices.org. Thank you again for listening. Now let's return to our show, This is Life Now. It used to be a point where I was just having good days and bad days, and then it got to a point where I was just having days where good and bad things happened. Uh, we kind of live on a circle. And it's it's point seven miles from, you know, door all the way around back to my front door. And I'd get about halfway and I'd start feeling tired or pain in my chest or things like that. And and we've messed with my prescriptions. You know, I, I take at night, I take like 11 pills or something stupid like that. Mm-hmm. And I take I take four in the morning um, to help regulate everything that's going on inside me. Uh, which which is good because I need it, but at the same time, it it had caused me to not be able to even walk very far. And then recently, about a month ago, uh, a new thing occurred. I had, on a Saturday, I had a mini-stroke. And then a few days later, on the Wednesday, I had a second mini-stroke, um, which was worse than the first one. Uh, never quite on the verge of a full-blown stroke, thank goodness, you mm-hmm. know. So we don't know why they've happened, and now I can't drive because of it. As far as work goes, you know, I, I work from home typically, but I would normally travel on occasion. 
but my boss has basically said, nope, you're done. Just work from home. No more travel until I tell you you can't. It feels like the walls are kind of closing in a little bit. Right. You know, I just don't have the ankle bracelet, you know. Let's yeah. In six years, Jason has gone from lifting weights, running 5Ks, and pushing himself to improve his physical stamina to a point where he cannot run at all. His heart, an organ we all depend upon for life, has become a ticking time bomb, wired to a device that drops him to his knees when he's gone too far, but he never really knows what that too far is. Physical restriction has become a psychological burden constantly lurking in the shadows of daily existence. It reframes your reference on daily life. It's been a bit of a struggle for sure, and it's definitely, you know, depression for sure, anxiety. I've always had anxiety, but it's heightened now. Because right. I'm always wondering, you know, what's going to happen today? Uh, if I go to the store and get groceries, am I going to have a problem? Uh, if I decide to go out with some friends, am I going to have an issue while I'm there? You know, right. where am I going to be where there's a hospital? You know, I have to think about all those things all the time. And it definitely gets at you. You, you have a new baby? Right. And then there's Ian, who's just about 18 months now. He's really testing my limitations. Right. <laughs> oh, he loves being chased. It's it's fun to, you know, I'm going to get you. And then he starts running and giggling, and it's the best thing ever. But I can't keep up. Like, a toddler is outrunning me. So I, I do my best to play with him as best as I can, because obviously he has no clue. I mean, he just yeah. he sees me, and he knows that I like to have fun and, and play with him. And I do what I can, but I have to stop quite often and take a break. I've always feared... Before we even got pregnant, my fear was I don't want to, you know, have our child grow up, boy, girl, whatever, and they want to go outside and play in the yard, throw a ball around, and I'm not going to be able to do it. That's always been my biggest fear, and that fear is now coming to reality. Most people, when we have fears, it's usually about something that can be overcome. It's just a mental thing. Whereas this was stemming from a place of, no, this could actually happen. But it's it's what we do with that information, I think, that makes the biggest difference because yeah. you can either accept it and then go, well, there's nothing I can do, or you can take that and say, okay, here's how I adapt and overcome that and make it the best situation that I can. And, and that's basically what I'm trying to do, and I'm going to push my limits a little bit as long as I don't get shocked. <laughs> <laughs> To authentically know Jason, you needed to learn the depth of his daily condition, the limitations on his future options, and how out of the blue all of this came. But you also need to listen to his voice. Jason is confident, optimistic, and driven. Depression, anxiety, and fear may claim some of his days, but he is learning to reinvent himself, adapting and evolving into something new. If I surround myself with people that kind of 
empathize enough to understand that it's a struggle or if I can surround myself with people that are going through similar situations, it makes it easier. Right. Um, there's a, a website called The Mighty that I got uh, introduced to where it allows people to basically post blogs, if you will, of what they're going through. Right. Some blogs are negative, some blogs are positive. And I've read a few of those, and uh, you know, some have been kind of inspiring. There was a lady that I read that she, she had a heart and lung transplant at the same time. Oh, my goodness. And you know, the picture and the, the picture shows of her wearing this like insane mask so that she can breathe properly. But she's in this beautiful dress in this really bright colored picture. And she's got a, you can tell she's smiling like right. through, through her eyes. And she just wrote this really inspiring post about how things are going to be great. And I'm just like, wow, you know, if she can get through that, then, you know, cause there's always someone going through something worse. Right. You know, I have to I have to remind myself of that because it all on the bad days, you feel like you're the only one. And it's easy to think that because I'm literally here by myself. <laughs> 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 so, you know, it's not hard to make that leap. Right. Um, right. Right. But then I'm reminded of her story and other ones that I've read, out, you know, in, in similar fashion from that website and. And I've posted myself. I haven't posted anything positive yet. I've always been talking about negative things. Um, right. But I look forward to the day where I can turn around and say, hey, you know, all the crummy stuff that I had to go through to get to this point was worth it because now I'm this. You know, I have to find ways to continuously make changes so that I can feel alive and feel like my purpose is still worth you know, giving energy to. Just like in the 319, Jason finds people to lean on. The Mighty provides perspective, but Jason also has the wonderful support of his wife Maggie and little Ian. They help him find meaning in his daily existence, no matter how difficult it might be. One way Jason is becoming new is through writing. He's taking his life experience and it's sharing it to help others. He has published two books, Relationships Under Construction and A Life of Heart. He's currently working on a third book and you can check him out on Amazon or at his website, alifeofheart.com. If you're moved by a story, you might consider supporting his efforts by purchasing a book. A verse I've always appreciated in many different forms is uh, Luke 9.23 about picking up your cross daily if you want to follow me. Right. And I've, I've always thought in the past that that just meant one thing. That if you want to follow Jesus, you need to say, yes, I'm a Christian and I'm going to follow you. Like right. Literally, that's all I thought it meant. Right. But it was still a bold statement at the time because not many people want to admit that. Mm-hmm. Whereas now... I, I see that verse as many different things, and I think about Paul. That man, that guy went through so much and had like the craziest turnaround story, you know, that right. I've ever known about. And he's written so many different things. And I think about like, you know, his I think it was his heel right that was hurt um, 
and he asked God to take it away, and he's like, no, you're going to deal with this. And I kind of feel like, I don't want to say that that's the same with my heart, but at the same time, it's it's kind of a nice reminder to me that you can be hurt, but still be effective. Hmm. Um, and so, therefore, Luke 9.23 about taking up your cross daily means something more now, or it means differently now than it did before because of the heart stuff. That taking so, up the cross then becomes more of the, 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 daily, the daily challenges? Is that how you'd say? How would you uh, frame that? Yeah, I mean, it, how I frame it in my head might sound different than how I say it in words, but that's okay. true with anything. Yeah. But uh, it was simple before to, to just take up your cross and follow me. Right. And by simple, I mean all I had to do was say, yes, I'm a Christian. Okay, okay I'm done. Now, I have so much more to think about, and it's easier to bypass saying I'm a Christian, because I could just say, well, yeah, I have a heart condition. Mm-hmm. Boo-hoo me. And yes, yeah, some days I feel like that. But if I do it right, I say, yeah, I have a heart condition, but that's okay, because God obviously has allowed it. And he's allowed it for whatever reason, and I'm still figuring out those reasons. But one of those reasons for sure is so that I could turn to you and say, even in this time of trial, I can still say that he is who he is. Right. Um, so picking up your cross now means more, hmm. has more of an effect than right. before. Because right. it's easy when everything is going great to be like, yes, I'm a Christian. Isn't life wonderful? Right. <laughs> and right. then, you know, oh, you have a heart condition and you're, you're probably going to need a heart transplant you know, soon or whenever to live. Isn't, isn't life wonderful? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, it's not, but you know, God is. Yeah. And there's a reason why I'm taking this on. Like, yeah, crappy things happen, but I strongly believe that God wouldn't allow it if he didn't feel like it was necessary. Jason's reflection drew my thoughts back to something a listener had shared with me about an earlier show, Dear God, It's Not You, It's Me, the story about a young man's journey into atheism. The listener, who was in the process of getting an advanced degree in counseling, said, Research is suggesting adults who were abused as children or suffer from unstable relationships in childhood are more apt to develop healthy, stable relationships as adults if they find a relationship with God. Actually, she said, the research is quite overwhelming, but more atheist-leaning researchers reject the evidence. I don't have a final opinion either way, but I am amazed at how Jason's life and faith journey reflect this assessment. I think you need to understand that about Jason as you listen to him. God has been the most stable relationship in his life. His wife Maggie is a source of immeasurable strength and their relationship is wonderful, but the stability of his marriage is grounded in his faith. God has been his source of good. Carrying the cross in health was a symbol of that goodness. Now with a heart condition, the cross has become a burden. Not a physical burden, but an emotional one. A bad heart starts to question God's goodness, a spiritual kind of love on the rocks. To help find meaning in this event, Jason turns to the Apostle Paul. 
who suffered incredibly during his life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about a thorn placed in his side and asking three times to have it removed. The Lord would not remove the thorn, but said, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. Jason describes God's purpose through his suffering in ways that makes me uncomfortable. As firmly as Jason believes what he believes, I do not believe God is the agent commanding suffering. Instead, I believe in all things God can bring good out of our suffering. But it's not my place to tell him how to frame his situation because it's his and not mine. However, what I hear is a young man coming to grips with his faith, his condition, and his future. He is still searching for both words and understanding to express it all. So this is where Jason is at. His heart is his thorn and cross, something he wants removed but knows he must carry. His confidence and strength is God's grace, which he knows is sufficient enough, but his hope is trying to discover how can power be made perfect in this weakness, a weakness which seeks to destroy his living. The pursuit of finding power in his weakness is what is making Jason feel alive and that he is living a life worthy of giving energy to. Out of weakness comes power, which truly is a life of heart. That's our show. I want to thank you for listening. Thank Jason for sharing. May you join with me in praying for his health, for Maggie and Ian. May they all continue to find abundant life together and strengthen their weakness. I've started turning the daily reflections into podcasts, a kind of spiritual reflection for people on the go. You can follow along there until our next show. But until then, remember there is more joy in serving than being served, more life in love than hate, and patience is key to understanding. If you like what you heard, remember, please share it with a friend. Go to the website, OrdinaryVoices.org, to find other shows and to sign up for the daily devotions. This is a listener-supported show. If you enjoy it, please consider financially supporting it by clicking on the Donate button on the website, OrdinaryVoices.org. Now, on behalf of all Ordinary Voices, thanks for listening, and I look forward to our next conversation.